Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. President Biden approves a disaster declaration for Hawaii as that state continues to burn. The lead starts right now. Unprecedented disaster, new images showing the power of flames ripping through communities in Hawaii. The death toll rises to 36 confirmed deaths as crews anticipate that number growing even higher. And President Biden's $6 billion deal with Iran. Will the regime free five Americans in exchange for frozen funds? The first steps appear to be already in the works. Plus, the deepest dive yet into the lavish lifestyle for Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas Luxury trips, private planes, big ticket gifts, all bankrolled by billionaires, detailed by ProPublica, and never disclosed. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We start today with our national lead and the utter devastation in many parts of Hawaii with fears that the reality could be much worse than we know because a lack of power and cell service complicates search and rescue efforts. At least 36 people have been killed in what the state's lieutenant governor is calling unprecedented wildfires. Most of the fires on Maui Island, where those deaths happened, are still not contained, according to local officials. It could take days or even weeks for power and cell phone service on the island to be restored. Issues that are making it incredibly hard for survivors to know if their friends and family are okay. I have extended family, my grandmother, my uncle, my friends, family members um, that we're looking for. So many people have gone missing. And I will say that it is an unspoken fact that the death toll is way higher than 36. This afternoon, President Biden approved a disaster declaration for Hawaii, which includes money that can be used for temporary housing and for home repairs. The state's governor estimates the damage to homes and buildings will be in the billions of dollars. CNN's Veronica Miracle starts off our coverage from Maui, Hawaii, where one local resident tells her that her town looks like a bomb went off. If anybody's still out here, it's time to go. Chaos and panic as the relentless wildfires continue to ravage the paradise island of Maui, leaving loss and destruction in its wake. Oh my God. Some residents escaping by boat, watching the flames engulf their town as they sailed away. We caught up with volunteers today in Kahului Harbor while they were loading up supplies to be taken to nearby Napili. We've heard the fire bombs were so big they were sucking oxygen out of the air. People were, didn't ha- have oxygen to breathe. I think this is an absolutely top-level national disaster. We've never seen anything like it. I've been here 32 years. Just the beginning of aid efforts that will be needed on this island of devastation. What we're seeing is just this widespread devastation across many different neighborhoods in Maui. Families waking up today after losing their homes, possessions, and for some, their pets. This morning was completely devastating to see when we woke up, seeing what our town had transformed into just overnight. 
everyone that I know and love, everyone that I'm related to, that I communicate with, my colleagues, friends, family, we're all homeless. It's an extremely traumatic experience. Um, there's a lot of a lot of emotion and trauma that's going to have to be dealt with for the whole community. The Coast Guard pulled more than 50 people from the ocean who had jumped in to escape the flames. Still get dead bodies in the water floating and on the seawall. Nearly 11,000 customers remain without power. More than 2,000 residents are in shelters and many travelers are still stranded on the island. The National Guard reports they dropped 150,000 gallons of water over the fires Wednesday to help suppress the flames. And while the fires still rage on, the search and rescue efforts continue. The primary focus is to save lives and then to prevent human suffering and then mitigate great property loss. Lieutenant Governor Sylvia Lake toured the damage by helicopter Wednesday and was shocked by what she witnessed. It looked as if it's just the whole town was devastated. Jake, these volunteers put out a call for help and all of these supplies coming together here within the last hour. They'll be loaded up on a boat and taken to nearby Lahaina, close to Lahaina. Now, one of the biggest items they need, gasoline. We are told that some people are not able to leave because they don't have enough gas in their car. That is why supply runs like this are so critical. Jake. Veronica, miracle on the island of Maui in Hawaii. Thank you so much. The FAA is restricting commercial and private flights from the fire areas so that search and rescue teams can keep up their important work. But there are still evacuation flights getting out of Maui today and headed to the big island. And for some of those people, they touch down with only the clothes on their backs, knowing that their home and all of their belongings are gone. CNN's Mike Valerio is outside the convention center in Honolulu, which has been turned into a makeshift shelter. And Mike, tell us what you're hearing from people arriving there after evacuating. Well, Jake, good morning from Honolulu, 10 a.m. here. And I think that to a person, you hear expressions of profound gratitude because everybody who's coming here a couple of yards in our backdrop is coming fresh off the plane from the epicenter of the disaster zone, about 80 miles away from where we're standing. And, you know, we've been here, Jake, since about midnight local time. It's now just after 10. And I think that, you know, what has been so moving is when you see people who come off these buses straight from the international airport and you see in their faces expressions of sorrow, exhaustion, just disconsolate families who have witnessed so much, again, from this disaster zone that they never thought was in the realm of possibility. So to that end, you're going to hear from a man who has helped coordinating this operation, turning the convention center into this makeshift shelter within a matter of hours, and then a woman who witnessed the devastation of the disaster zone. Listen to what they told us. We talk a lot about aloha, right, as that value. We talk a lot about the value of malama, to care for, to cherish, to nurture, right? And that's one thing to talk about it. It's another thing to live it out. It was devastating to see how much damage had been done. The entire hillside on one area where a lot of houses, I believe, were, was just wiped out. We saw a lot of burnt out cars. And then the other section of town where the old historic town was, was just a blackened ruin. 
You know, Jake, the families we've spoken to over the past couple hours have described what they saw in Lahaina as just these intricate, beautiful sandcastles. You think of the beautiful sails of the ships, docks that have been there for generations, just all wiped out in a matter of seconds. So arresting for people to see. So wrapping up the plan here for the rest of the day, Jake, authorities tell us that they only cared for just about a hundred or so people overnight. But as this evacuation operation becomes more of a finely tuned machine out of Maui, they are expecting more people whose lives were horribly disruptive, uh, disrupted to come find solace here, or at least a temporary spot where they can regroup and figure out how to go on from here. Jake? All right, Mike Valerio in Honolulu, thanks so much. Joining us to discuss, Clint Hansen, a Maui resident who took some of the stunning drone video of the wildfires that you've seen here on CNN. Uh, Clint, um, one of the worst things about being a journalist is you talk to people uh, on their worst day, uh, on, on one of their worst days, um, and I'm sorry to be doing that now. How, how are you doing? How are your families doing? How is your family doing? How, how are your friends doing? Well, is everybody at least safe and accounted for? Yeah, you know, we're one of the lucky ones. Um, I'm here on the south side, and the fire that we had uh, start over here ended up petering out uh, on the wind. And the wind has been the biggest driving factor in fueling the flames and why Lahaina's disaster was so bad. Um, Maui has had multiple fires that we've been juggling and uh, it's part of the reasons why resources are scattered so thin is because a lot of the firefighters were dealing with evacuations in upcountry. I'm in Kihei. I was taking footage throughout the night in order to make sure people understood uh, where we sat and uh, how disastrous it could be and whether or not we uh, were going to be able to get through this. Fortunately enough, it got pushed to a gully right where the wind stopped and it created a natural fire break. So as of right now, uh, my main family is all safe and accounted for. Uh, I also, in addition to selling real estate, own the paintball field over on the west side and a lot of our friends are missing. Uh, we're scouring the regular shelter lists, trying to get for familiar names. You know, we're sending out texts, but not hearing back, hoping that this is just a battery issue or a cell phone tower issue. Uh, but it is, it's really terrifying. And as I've heard, and we all know, this number of 36 people passing away is going to grow dramatically as time goes on and rescue efforts continue. Yeah, we but. are asking everybody to, you know, pitch in and help. We've already made multiple runs to drop off supplies, food, um, clothes, you know, diapers, wipes, anything that is uh, of use, toiletries. And, uh, you know, I have had clients reaching out to me, offering their condo vacancies up for uh, people who are without shelter just to get a couple of days in a nice bed and some warm water, you know, a shower if they were able to make it over here on the south side. But yeah. hospitals just way over capacity, thousands of people with injuries there, and um, let alone the number of deaths is just well above 36, even though that number seems to be the official. Yeah, that's the number of confirmed dead. Um, and after the segment's over, we'll, we'll tell our viewers ways that they can help uh, the citizens uh, of Maui. Um, you have described the devastation as the worst day Maui will ever have. Um, what is it like to watch parts of your community disappear? I, I cannot fathom such a thing. Well, it came trickling in, you know, without the communication, we were only getting a few images and it was mostly just, you know, verbiage descriptions, this building gone, this building gone. 
you know, Pioneer Inn gone, you know, Harbor gone. It's like, it doesn't register. It just, it sounds like, you know, it's words. It, it can't possibly be true. And then when you see it's literally all gone, it, it blows your mind, you know, to have a firestorm move through and burn every boat down to the waterline doesn't seem possible, but you know, people are running for their lives, jumping in the ocean to escape. And one of my friends have been fortunate enough was talking to his mom on the phone, has had to get out of his car and jump into the ocean, telling him to take care of his daughter, that he loved her and didn't hear from him since then for a day. And fortunately he was able to survive. Him and his girlfriend are pretty badly beaten up, both emotionally and physically, but he survived. Part of the reason was uh, it took so long to walk to, sh- to the, the shelters and the help um, but he was able to uh, help multiple people on the way out there, which is why it took him so long uh, to get get there. Can as somebody who knows about real estate, you, you you have an idea for construction and such. Do you have any idea how how long it might take to rebuild some? You know, Maui is notorious for having difficulty issuing permits. We have to come up with some other process because our county is lacking. Uh, you know, enough filled positions to do the job appropriately. So I don't know if that means outsourcing or changing the dynamic where, you know, it's more of an insurance bond against the property to make sure it's safe as opposed to putting the liability on the county instead putting it on the insurance so that people are protected and that they're moving into a quality home. But to replace or even uh, put a dent in what's happened in a timely manner our current system just can't keep up. So that's one of the things I've just, I've been scratching my head. You know, there has to be a really big and drastic change in order to put people in a timely manner. And the biggest fear is our people are going to have to leave. There's not going to be a lot of options with being so isolated. People are going to have to move to the mainland. And only thing that I can think is maybe provide them funds and then, provide a certificate for, you know, having the first option on properties once things are being rebuilt back in Hawaii to get our Maui people home. Yeah. Clint Hansen, thank you so much. Appreciate your time. And for more information on how you can help the victims of Hawaii's wildfires, please head to CNN.com slash impact. CNN.com slash impact. We have a list of vetted organizations that you can check out. Coming up, that major deal that the Biden administration is calling delicate. Five Americans almost free in exchange. Iran could get frozen funds. Plus, as federal prosecutors push for a January trial for Donald Trump, how much support does he have within the Republican Party? Still, we'll talk to former Republican Governor Chris Sununu. And this just in, the Supreme Court is blocking a $6 billion Purdue Pharma opioid settlement. What we're learning about this from the Supreme Court breaking right now ahead. Topping our world lead, a monumental development today in one of America's iciest foreign relationships. Five wrongfully detained Americans in Iran have been released from a notorious Iranian prison and are now on house arrest. That's according to one of their lawyers. This would be the first step in a deal that includes the United States government agreeing to release a hefty $6 billion of, as of now, frozen Iranian funds. Today, the three named and one unnamed Americans in detention were moved from Tehran's notorious Evin prison to a hotel guarded by Iranian officials. The fifth American was already on house arrest before today. CNN's Kylie Atwood 
reveals how two nations with no formal diplomatic relations made this deal. Five Americans who have been imprisoned in Iran are now under house arrest. A major step towards freedom. It's obviously an exciting moment. Siamak Namazi, Murad Tabaz, and Ahmad Shargi have been imprisoned in Iran for years. The identity of the other two Americans is unknown. The deal could make $6 billion in Iranian funds held in South Korea more accessible to Tehran, while maintaining strict limitations on how those funds can be used. That's according to a source familiar with the negotiations. Iran also said that five Iranian prisoners in the U.S. would be released as part of the deal. But the Biden administration still needs to work out some elements of the agreement in the coming weeks, leaving plenty of room for something to go wrong. All we know now today, with any assurances, are that they are out under house arrest. Um, And what happens next uh, is anyone's guess. National Security Council spokesperson Adrian Watson called their move to house arrest, quote, an encouraging step but said that the Biden administration will not rest until they are back in the U.S., calling ongoing negotiations delicate. Siamak Namazi is the longest-held American prisoner, arrested in 2015 and left behind in multiple deals between the U.S. and Iran that freed other Americans. His brother telling CNN this in 2021. Each time I saw lights at the end of the tunnel, it's it's turned out to be a fast-moving train, unfortunately. And Siamak was so desperate to get out that he courageously called CNN's Christian Amanpour from behind bars earlier this year. Desperate times call for desperate measures. Now, Jake, the negotiations to secure the release of these Americans are separate from conversations regarding Iran's nuclear deal, uh, nuclear program, excuse me. That's according to a source familiar with the negotiations. But progress here could, of course, facilitate forward progress in other areas, according to that source. Jake. All right. CNN's Kylie Atwood at the U.S. State Department. Thanks so much. Let's talk more about this with Jared Genser. He's the pro bono counsel to Siomak uh, Namazi. Uh, Jared Siomak was arrested in 2015 for allegedly having, quote, relations with a hostile state, unquote, since he's a dual Iranian U.S. citizen. His dad, uh, Bara, was lured to Iran and then also spent time behind bars, although he was later released so that he could get medical help. Both men deny ever doing anything wrong. Um, Did Iran's government ever attempt to share any evidence of wrongdoing with you? It was very, very uh, narrowly shared. Uh, You know, CMAC had been uh, repeatedly interrogated on a range of things. He had been involved with a number of organizations in Washington that are very, very well known, like the Woodrow Wilson Center for Scholars, the National Endowment for Democracy. And he was being questioned about those things. But there really was no trial at all. In fact, he was just taken with his lawyer to meet the judge who handed him a 50 page judgment showing he had been convicted. He wasn't even able to take that with him. He just had the opportunity to read it and see that he was convicted and sentenced to 10 years in jail. So to say that there was no due process is a dramatic understatement. How are Siamak and his family feeling today with this news? Well, this is a great step forward. Uh, there, it's undeniable. Um, you know, there have been so many uh, attempts that have failed. I mean, if I had a dollar for every attempt, I'd probably have at least 100 bucks by now. So, you know, this is an important step forward. At the same time, you know, as was noted, you know, we need to you know, take this through its final conclusion. And I was heartened by hearing the Iranian uh, government say that uh, that the five will be pardoned in exchange uh, for prisoners, uh, Iranian prisoners in the United States. The fact that they publicly committed to that is great. But at the end of the day, I think we all know that uh, until 
the plane has uh, taken off in Lithuanian airspace that I can't count really on anything. How will life under house arrest in Iran? And what, what does that look like? So I think it's, it's better than one might imagine. Um, they're being held in a hotel, uh, in, a, in a reasonably good hotel in Tehran. Um, the, the five Americans are uh, being held together um, and uh, are able to talk to each other. They're able to be in contact with family. They're able to have better food, to have their own bed, to have their own uh, their own shower. You know, when they were living in Never Prison, you know, they were in dormitories with eight or ten people per room. They had mass showers they had to share and let's just say not so high quality food. So it's a step forward uh, in terms of their own treatment. Um, but I think all of them know better than anybody that until it's done, it's not done. Jared Genser, thank you. Stay in touch. Uh, we want to keep covering this story until that plane has taken off and then landed uh, back here in the United States. Thanks so much. Coming up next, the details just coming into CNN about the Supreme Court now blocking a $6 billion Purdue Pharma opioid settlement. Stay with us. This news just into CNN. In our health lead, the Supreme Court has blocked Purdue Pharma, the manufacturer of OxyContin, from going forward with bankruptcy proceedings and a $6.6 billion settlement. This was part of an arrangement that would ultimately offer the Sackler family, the founders of Purdue Pharma, broad protection from opioid-related civil claims. The Supreme Court says they will now take up this case and hear arguments about it in December. Uh, Let's bring in CNN's Gene Casares and Joan Biskupic. Gene, what exactly was in this settlement? Well, first of all, when it began in 2019, when the bankruptcy was uh, declared by Purdue Pharma, All of the civil suits, and there were so many around the country against the Sacklers, against Purdue Pharma, they all were channeled into the bankruptcy action. That was one of the first things they did. And people need to realize how huge this was. This involved states. This involved counties. This involved townships. This involved tribal nations all over the country. And I remember being in the courtroom, and it was filled with attorneys, attorneys by phone all over the country. So they started negotiating. They've been negotiating for years on this, since 2019, and they finally determined, and there was a handful of states that were opposed to this, but it was really symbolically at the end, they decided that what would happen is that the Sacklers would pay out approximately $6 billion to individual claimants, to states, to abatement procedures involving crisis medications that could be given to people. And in lieu of that, and their names would be taken off buildings around the country also, that was part of it. But in lieu of that, they would not face civil suits going forward because the monies would be going toward uh, everything that I just described. And here's the impact of this. Those people that were the victims and that they wanted money and six billion dollars is going to all of that. This will be stopped in its tracks. So no one, no community, no abatement proceedings, no medications will be going for the short term to those entities that so need it. Joan, are you surprised that the U.S. Supreme Court has not only blocked this settlement that had been agreed upon, uh, but that they're also going to take up the case? Well, Jake, uh, those are pretty dramatic terms that Gene just outlined, and the solicitor 
general of the United States actually used them in her arguments to try to get the Supreme Court to intervene to say this is a very exceptional agreement, unprecedented. Uh, the scope of it is something that, you know, maybe should be blocked. And in encouraging the justices to take it up, say, look at lower courts are divided. Uh, out there on situations when companies, when parties can be released from liability. So it is, in some ways, it's surprising that they're intervening at this stage, but this is the most crucial stage, and they have set it on a pretty fast track. Uh, they've ordered a fairly quick briefing schedule, and the case would be heard in early December with a resolution, Jake, probably by the end of June of next year. So, you know, it's when you think of the opioid, opioid addiction crisis in America and the responsibility of Purdue Pharma and the Sackler family, uh, this is a pretty unprecedented settlement. So that's why the Supreme Court has intervened at this point, Jake. All right, Joan Biskupic and Jean Casares, thanks. Let's bring in uh, the Attorney General of Ohio, uh, Dave Yost. Ohio is one of the eight states, as well as Washington, D.C., that are part of the $6 billion settlement. And you might remember Ohio is, of course, tragically one of the epicenters of the opioid crisis. Uh, General Yost, thanks for joining us. Did you want the Supreme Court to take up the case, uh, or, or did you want them to allow the settlement to move forward? We wanted the settlement to move forward. Um, this is money that's not flowing to individual claimant families. It's not coming back uh, equally important to our communities and to our states to fight back against this avalanche of addiction that was architected by the Sacklers. What is the, the, the I'm going to ask you a, 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 a question I've, I haven't asked anybody before. What's the best argument for the people who disagree with you? The best argument being made by, for instance, a solicitor general, people who want the Supreme Court to review this case, they, they, they disagree with the settlement. Uh, I, I realize I'm asking you to state something you don't agree with, but what is their best case? Well, the, I think there's probably two arguments on the other side. The, the first is that there's a lack of due process in the in the. Um, discharging that is just a, a fundamentally unfair uh, to let the Sacklers walk away. Uh, the problem with that is that under the law, uh, we can get to Purdue Pharma. The individual uh, family money that's behind that is much more difficult legally in most of our states. Uh, the other issue, which is kind of a policy issue, is what do we do with these mass torts that are so massive? Um, there, there are existential lawsuits, um, and to maximize the recovery for the wrongs done, um, you have to have some kind of means of marshalling all these claims. Um, and this is going to be an interesting argument of the Supreme Court. And, and uh, your argument is, correct me if I'm wrong, there are people in Ohio and, and the other states who need help now who need that money now, organizations that need to help people who are still suffering in this epidemic that continues to take thousands of lives a year. Is that right? That's absolutely correct. And as the uh, Court of Appeals said, bankruptcy is a creature of compromises. Uh, it's, it's, it's a messy process of competing interests. We've seen some preliminary data showing that drug overdose deaths have leveled off, but still more than 100,000 Americans losing their lives from overdoses nationally, most of them, I believe, 
uh, opioids. Uh, how, how is Ohio uh, working uh, to alleviate the cri- crisis? Well, we have a coalition, uh, we call it the One Ohio Foundation, that has all of our local governments and the state government. We're sharing the money from these various lawsuits to bring it back to the local level for treatment, for uh, for prevention, um, for enforcement, uh, because this war is fought on the ground of our streets, of our cities and our counties, uh, and it's so important to get this money flowing. It's been since 2019 uh, that this bankruptcy proceeding's been going on. I guess the best thing I can say about today's decision to cure the case is at least they set it for December. Yeah. Can you imagine if terrorists killed 100,000 Americans a year? But this is us doing it to ourselves. Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost, thank you so much for your time. Uh, As always, we appreciate it. Thank you, sir. It was ProPublica that first revealed the name of the one man footing the bill for some fancy trips, benefiting Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. And now ProPublica is telling us about three more billionaire friends with the most extensive look yet into the Thomas's lavish lifestyle, which we should note was not disclosed by Justice Thomas. That's ahead. It must be nice to have lots of friends who are billionaires. Free luxury vacations, private jet rides, sporting event tickets, yacht cruises. Of course, I'm talking about the friends of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas and ProPublica's bombshell reporting today. As CNN's Tom Foreman explains, the report adds new urgency to questions about transparency and ethics on and off the bench. The most complete accounting yet of the high life of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas shows much, much more than previously known. More private jets, more fancy vacations, more sporting events, all gifts from mega-rich businessmen and documented through public and private records, plus interviews by ProPublica. Justice Thomas has been living a life of extreme luxury for 30 years, underwritten by at least four different ultra-wealthy benefactors. Earlier reports have revealed lavish gifts to Thomas, including a house for his mother and this nine-day vacation in Indonesia from conservative billionaire Harlan Crow. I've come from regular stock. Who also underwrote a film about Thomas's humble taste. I prefer the RV parks. Now the list of benefactors includes three more names, according to ProPublica, David Sokol, Wayne Huizinga, and Tony Novelli. The report says the four moguls collectively treated Thomas to 38 destination vacations, including a previously unreported voyage on a yacht around the Bahamas, 26 private jet flights, plus an additional eight by helicopter, a dozen VIP passes to professional and college sporting events, two stays at luxury resorts in Florida and Jamaica, and one standing invitation to an uber-exclusive golf club. The dollar value, likely in the millions, little of which appeared in required financial disclosures, according to ProPublica. Thomas has previously said he didn't feel the need to disclose some gifts. And that worries Jeremy Fogel, an expert on judicial ethics and a former judge. I simply couldn't have done this. And even if the people involved didn't have interest before the court, uh, it's it's just the, the... idea that you are receiving gifts of this magnitude. 
Associate justices make about $285,000 a year. In 2001, when they made about $100,000 less, Thomas spoke up. The job is not worth doing for what they pay. It's not worth doing for the grief, but it is worth doing for the principle. Now he bristles at questions about his principles. He calls Crow merely a friend. Crow says they never talk about Thomas's work, and the new report found none of these wealthy pals seem to have had cases before the court. Still, which one of these new benefactors, uh, just like Harlan Crow, came into his life after he was appointed to the Supreme Court? That's why it's so problematic from an ethics standpoint. There is no evidence that these rich friends broke any laws or rules by giving these extraordinary gifts, and it's unclear if Thomas technically did anything wrong by accepting. So defenders of the benefactors and the justices are calling this a smear job, but the earlier revelation spurred an outcry for this court to come up with much more strict and transparent rules about such financial matters, and this report will only make that drum beat louder. Yeah. Tom Foreman, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Coming up next, the big event that has politicians racing to see butter cows and blue ribbon pigs. In our politics lead, ah, the smell of the 800-pound butter cow, which signifies it's time for the Iowa State Fair. As that famous event begins, fairgoers hope to win ribbons. Republican presidential candidates hope to win critical votes for the state's first-in-the-nation caucus. Today, former Vice President Mike Pence is there. He's getting ready to speak. Former President Trump will attend this weekend. With us now, New Hampshire Republican Governor Chris Sununu joins us to discuss. You're not heading to the Iowa State Fair, but you are in the first in the nation primary state. And I know you're involved with candidates in other ways. Last night, you introduced uh, former Governor Chris Christie to town hall event in, in New Hampshire. You say you're not ready to endorse a Republican candidate yet, but you have ruled out endorsing a third party no labels ticket. Are you advising thir- uh, no labels to, to stay out of the race altogether? No, no, not not really. I mean, I'm not really talking with them other than I know that their path is to kind of fill the gap. If it were a Trump Biden ticket uh, for the 70 percent of America that doesn't want to see any of that. Right. So that's my sense is that's the gap that they would choose to fill. But that my sense is they'd probably have to make the decision sometime next spring. The good news is I don't think it's going to be a Trump Biden ticket. I really don't. I have my, uh, my doubts on both of them, even though I understand they're leading in the polls today. Long way to go before Iowa and New Hampshire. And already, if you just look on the Republican side, Trump is having trouble in the polls here. Three out of the last five polls have him under 40%. So where the conversations are happening, uh, they're, they're, some of these other candidates are making headway and they're slowly separating. And we haven't even had the first debate yet. So I think there's just a lot to come in the, in the next few months. Is it possible that after the Iowa caucuses and as the candidates head east to New Hampshire, you will endorse someone, especially if it is an important imperative to you to have a strong non-Trump Republican candidate? Oh, absolutely. I, I think I, I would consider doing that even before the Iowa caucuses. Look, I'm not sure 100 percent what how much my, my endorsement helps or doesn't help, but um, I do believe in narrowing this field down. I do believe in, in my sense is getting it down to five or six candidates into Iowa, four or five going into New Hampshire. And then coming out of New Hampshire, you really have a one on one race with the former president and somebody else. And that's where he's in trouble because he cannot hold 50 percent of the Republican base. Perhaps one of the reasons why is because he's now facing three criminal indictments with the fourth possibly going to come down uh, soon in Georgia. Uh, here is you and what you said a couple of months ago about the classified documents case against Trump. 
everyone has to be very straightforward and transparent about it and acknowledge uh, the realities of the severity of these accusations. This is nothing like we've ever anything we've seen before. Um, and, and there's very likely, I think, going to come down to some type of guilty um, uh, verdict on, on the president, at least on some of these charges. Now, we should note you still have not ruled out supporting Trump if he does become the Republican nominee for president, though you've made it clear that's that's not your your preference. Can you explain how a vote for Biden would be worse than a vote for a man that you believe could be a convicted felon? Well, look, it's not going to come down to those two. And, and, and I, I have to say, it, it, if Trump loses and when he loses, it's not because of the indictments. It's really not. It's because we're moving forward. It's, it, we're not going backwards. That's the bigger. When you talk to Republicans on the ground, they're not saying, gee, I'm not going to be with him anymore because of the indictments. They're saying, well, I'm not going to be with him anymore because we, we've, we did that. We're, it's, it's yesterday's news. We need a fresh face and fresh ideas and moving forward, this country forward. So it's really not about those indictments uh, uh, directly. I think Joe Biden has a lot of problems, obviously, whether it's the Hunter Biden issue, even just his own health. I'm, I mean, God bless him. He's, he's a very older, much older guy. We, he, he doesn't quite have his fast. Ball, neither of them do. I think there's an opportunity for both parties to find a generational move forward with kind of that next generation, that next uh, uh, kind of push of energy, someone that can galvanize on the Republican side, young voters, independent voters, suburban moms. If you're not doing that, we're not winning, guys. So we need a candidate that can close the deal in November. And obviously the, the former president, <laughs> it ain't it. This week at a rally in your state, Donald Trump vowed to bring a full service Veterans Affairs Hospital to New Hampshire. Uh, and then he slammed you uh, for being governor of the only state that does not have one. Take a listen. The only state that doesn't have one. Because we're corrupt governors. Ah. I was waiting for that. Selfish, selfish guy. At the same time, well, he ran for president and he got uh, two points. He ran without running. You know, he didn't want to announce he wanted to run, but... It's a, it's a shame. All right, just a quick fact check. There's no evidence that you're corrupt. I don't think you're selfish, but that's my personal opinion. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and you did not run for president. But beyond that, let me just ask you about the substance of that. Do you have any plans to bring a full-service VA hospital to New Hampshire? Is that something that you want to push for? And, and what is your response to Donald Trump saying all that about you? Uh, so two things. I, look, on the Trump thing, I mean, he was he was upset. He said, oh, I didn't help him enough in 2020. And it's like, yeah, OK, so the former president is finally realizing he can't win New Hampshire without my help. You know, uh, shocking, shocking self-awareness for a guy who lives in fantasy land all the time. As for as for the uh, the, the VA hospital, look, we, we are one of the best states in the country for veterans and veteran services. And if the federal VA wants to expand into a full hospital here, that's fine. I'm more, I believe more in community-based services when you talk about mental health, opioid treatment, recovery, homelessness issues for veterans, specifically for veterans. Having one old centralized location, I'm not saying it's a bad model, but it's a little bit old school. We're, we're a little bit kind of modern in how we're doing things here. We make it more community-based, not just say everyone has to be in this one centralized location. All right, Republican Governor Chris Sununu of New Hampshire, live free or die. Thanks for being with us. Thank you, buddy. Next, that major deal that appears to be in the works to free five American detainees in Iran in exchange for frozen Iranian funds in the billions. I'll press the White House on how this deal came to be and at what cost. Stay with us. And welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, at least 36 people are dead, and there are fears that the number of lives lost will soar from the horrific wildfires that continue to scorch Hawaii. 
We're going to get another update on the aftermath on the ground in Maui, plus a new twist on the show Cops, where ordinary citizens are turning the cameras on the police and then sharing the video on YouTube. But is this about more than accountability? Leading this hour, four wrongfully detained Americans in Iran have been released from a notorious Iranian prison and are now on house arrest in a hotel, according to one of their lawyers. In exchange, the Biden administration has agreed to unfreeze $6 billion of frozen Iranian assets. The three named and one unnamed Americans were moved from Tehran's notorious Avin prison to a hotel guarded by Iranian officials earlier today. CNN's Christiane Amanpour was first to break the story. She also spoke with one of the Iranian-American detainees in an unprecedented interview from Avin Prison back in March. She joins us now. And Christiane, uh, Siamak Namazi took a huge risk talking to you, uh, but it does seem his message uh, has been heard. Well, well, let's hope so, because he was desperate, and you're absolutely right. He told me desperate times, you know, mean you have to take desperate measures. And it was an extraordinary thing for somebody to be able to tell, you know, take a phone call out of Evin. He had been in nearly eight years, so he had certain privileges, like the ability to use a phone, but never had that been allowed to uh, the press. And he didn't get permission, he just did it. But it just goes to show how desperate they were and how they absolutely wanted to get their message in front and center of the Biden administration to try to get this resolved, because they were wrongfully de- detained. And Siamak had been, you know, left behind three times, once under the Obama administration prisoner swap and twice under the Trump administration. Anyway, this is what he told me back then. It was a heartfelt plea heard around the world. Honestly, the other hostages and I desperately need President Biden to finally hear us out, to finally hear our cry for help and bring us home. And I suppose... Desperate times call for desperate measures. So this is a desperate measure. I, um, I'm clearly nervous. Siamak Namazi was Iran's longest-held American prisoner. He was arrested in 2015 while on a business trip and then sentenced to 10 years for, quote, collaborating with a hostile state. Namazi, a dual citizen, always denied the charge and Washington accused Iran of wrongfully detaining him. This was the desperate appeal he made to us from inside Evin prison in our unprecedented conversation. I think the very fact that I've chosen to take this risk and appear on CNN from, from Evin prison, it should just tell you how dire my situation has become uh, by this point. I spent months caged. I spent months caged in a solitary cell that was the size of a closet, sleeping on the floor, being fed like a dog from under the door. And honestly, that was the least of my troubles. Siamak's elderly father, Bare, who's now 86, was lured to Iran in 2016 with the promise of seeing his son. Instead, he too was arrested, imprisoned for two years, and then barred from leaving the country. He was finally allowed out last October to seek medical treatment abroad. He's never stopped publicly campaigning for his son's release. I will never truly be free until Siamak is here beside me. I could not be more proud of his courage, but I don't want him to have to be brave anymore. I want him to be safe. I want him to be free, to live life he should have been living for the past seven years. I want him to be home. 
Among the other hostages released along with Namazi are businessman Emad Shari and Morad Tabaz, who have both been held for more than five years. They say they never so much as jaywalked, and they were held only as Americans to be traded on the geopolitical market. Before their release, their families tried to rally support. I know that they are desperate, that they are scared, and they feel like they've been forgotten. They have been determined officially by the Department of State by our Secretary of State, as having been taken, detained by the Iranians for one reason, and that is because they are Americans. My father is an amazing person. He is so calm, so kind, so generous, so noble. And I think just how my siblings and I have been able to carry ourselves through this surreal nightmare is just a testament to him and my mother and everything that they've instilled in us and who they are. Former New Mexico Governor Bill Richardson, who advocates for some of these families, puts it bluntly. And this has happened in Russia, Venezuela, uh, Iran, North Korea. It's a pattern. It's a new hostage diplomacy that we have to start confronting. Just do what's necessary to end this nightmare and bring us home. Thank you. We'll get that message out, Siomak. These few may finally have been released, but will they be the last American hostages taken by Tehran? So emotional, and you can just see it from a human perspective, but of course this is wrapped up in geopolitics, as we said. There are in fact five Americans, it turns out. Two of them have not been named. And so we don't know who actually they are. Their families have not made their names public. We, CNN, got a uh, response, a statement from the Iranian government uh, in which they said that their release was a humanitarian gesture on their behalf. But they specifically said that this was an agreement done through a third-party government between the U.S. and Iran that would pardon and reciprocally release five uh, five prisoners. So obviously Iran is waiting for five prisoners to be released from the United States. And uh, importantly, though, this is absolutely only a first step until all the you know I's are dotted and T's are crossed and the deal is complete. Um, these Americans will not be able to leave the country. CNN's Christiana Mapour with Remarkable Reporting. Stick around if you would. Uh, I want to bring in White House National Security Council spokesman, retired Rear Admiral John Kirby, who joins us now. Uh, Admiral, thanks for joining us. So Iran is one of the only four countries in the U.S. uh, that the government, the U.S. government, officially designates as a state sponsor of terrorism. Um, The first question is, uh, how was this done? I know the U.S. does not negotiate with terrorists, but this negotiation was done through a third party. Is Is it Switzerland who did the negotiation? Uh, it was right through our Swiss representatives. That's right, Jake. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And it was our uh, it was a Swiss representative, uh, our protecting power, if you will, uh, since we don't have diplomatic relations with Iran, who checked in on these four once they got out of prison and verified to us that they were in fact out. So it's five U.S. detainees uh, who are now out of prison, but on house arrest. Uh, And is the exchange going to be for five Iranian prisoners here in the United States, as well as more than $6 billion in frozen Iranian assets being unfrozen? I think I'm going to refrain from getting too much into the specifics of the negotiations, Jake. They're ongoing. Today was an important first step. 
but it was just a first step. Uh, they are out of prison, but they are not out of Iran. And so we're going to be a little careful here about what we put in the public space about what the negotiations are going to look like. Once they get home and they're safe and sound, back with their families where they belong, uh, then I think we'll be a little bit more at liberty to talk uh, with more specificity on, uh, on what the negotiations look like. But they aren't, th those negotiations are active, Jake. They're not, they're not done. Just to jog everyone's memory out there, in 2016, uh, U.S. officials confirmed that President Obama secretly approved a, a $400 million cash transfer to Iran. This was also yeah. previously frozen Iranian assets. On the same day, Iran released four American prisoners and, and formally implemented uh, the nuclear deal. We even saw a video from Iranian state media, which appeared to show actual pallets of cash uh, this obviously became very controversial. Republicans jumped on it, and since insisting that this was basically negotiating with terrorists, a ransom payment, uh, right. the White House denied that. Uh, just this afternoon, Republican presidential candidate Mike Pence said, "Quote: Biden has authorized the largest ransom payment in America, American history to the mullahs in Tehran." Unquote. What would your response to that be? That he's wrong. Just plain and simple. Uh, look, while I can't tell you everything that we're doing and what, everything that this is, I can certainly tell you what it's not. Um, and there's not going to be a ransom payment. There's not going to be sanctions relief. There's no U.S. taxpayer dollars that are going to be applied to getting these uh, Americans home. And this $6 billion, without getting into the details uh, of the negotiations, I think there's a little confusion about uh, what, the, what this account is all about. This is part of, an, of a system of accounts that were set up in the previous administration that allowed some countries to import Iranian goods, non-sanctionable goods, and that the Iranians could pull on those accounts, those payments, through, the, through a special system only used for humanitarian purposes. Uh, and that's what we're talking about here. It's, an, it's a pre-existing account that was set up in the previous administration, which they allowed other countries to, to set up, uh, that has not been made accessible to the Iranians. They'd be able to have some access to it, but only for humanitarian purposes. Um, five Americans uh, who are part of this deal that we know of being released from the Avene uh, prison, uh, four of them, and put in a house arrest in a hotel. The fifth one already was in that house arrest. Right. Are there, removing them from the equation, we certainly all hope, we certainly hope that they all get out of Iran and back to the United States. Are there any other American citizens or American green card holders still detained in Iranian prisons unfairly be other than those five? These are the five that uh, the State Department have designated as wrongfully detained. One American also taken by Iran in 2007, of course, Robert Levinson, uh, is believed to be dead. I is there any new information that the U.S. might have about Mr. Levinson? Boy, I wish we had more, Jake, but uh, uh, we don't, and I have nothing more that I can uh, unfortunately say, uh, you know, certainly to his family. But I, I just, we just don't. What would you say to somebody out there, and this is my last question, uh, sir, who says, okay, so this money, let's say it's $6 billion, because I don't have another figure to go by and you didn't offer an alternating one, $6 billion in, in, in Iranian assets that are unfrozen, whether it's, I mean, you say it's not American taxpayer dollars, and that's, that's accurate. Still, uh, it does seem like we are giving the Iranians something, uh, and certainly I could understand why the common man or woman out there might say, you know, that's a ransom payment. I mean, I'm glad, these, yeah. I'm glad these Americans are getting home, but that's a ransom payment. Well, a couple of things here. First of all, uh, negotiations are about giving and taking. 
Um, and there was no universe in which we were going to get these five Americans home without some bartering, some compromising uh, with the Iranians. And that bartering is ongoing right now. So, again, I don't want to get too far ahead of what it's going to actually look like, the terms, the, the scope of the, uh, of the negotiation and the deal. But on this ransom, this is not a ransom. And it's important to remember that the account from which money could be accessed by the Iranians is an account set up in the previous administration that allowed other countries to import non-sanctionable goods. It's not something that the Biden administration created, but it is, it's a series of accounts that Iran has pulled on before. They haven't been able to pull on one account. And what we're talking about is the possibility of making that one account that has been in existence for several years more accessible to the Iranians. But it would be, again, under the same level of limits. They could only pull from that account for humanitarian purposes. And there is a, a oversight mechanism that's already built into that process. So it's not ransom. And again, no U.S. taxpayer dollars involved here. I think at the end of the day, uh, Jake, you know, there's going to be criticism. There's already been criticism. We understand that. I hope that at the end of the day, everybody, no matter who you vote for, can understand how important it is to get these families reunited, to get these Americans back home. And yes, sometimes that means making some tough decisions and some tough calls. You and I have talked about several of those in the past. The president's not afraid to make those tough decisions because he cares that much about the safety and security of Americans overseas. Agreed. Uh, it is uh, not an easy story, uh, not an easy uh, terrain to, to negotiate uh, to get these Americans home. Admiral John Kirby, uh, good to see you as always. Let's bring back a CNN chief international anchor, Christiane Mapour. So, Christiane, you just heard uh, Mr. Kirby say there's, there's, it's not a ransom payment. No sanctions relief. No U.S. taxpayer dollars will be used. Um, what is this then, in your view? Well, I think uh, John Kirby is absolutely right. It's not ransom. I mean, look, if you want to talk about all these things, they've been going on since time immemorial, since the beginning of the Islamic Revolution. Successive American presidents have had to do the necessary to get Americans back, you know, from the beginning of the Reagan administration all the way through to this one. And for, with respect, Vice President Pence to, to cast aspersions, remember, he was the vice president for President Trump, who entered two such deals uh, to get two Americans back. Before that, President Obama did too. You mentioned it as part of the Iran nuclear deal. And before that, and before that, the presidents did it. Right now, President Biden, this year, has entered a, a deal of, of reciprocity with the Russians to get back Brittany Griner and trying to get back others. These are the facts of life. And to protect American life, sometimes these have to happen. Uh, Admiral uh, Kirby didn't say to you, and I, I'm not sure whether I've got this right, but from what I understand about the money, it is not even American money. Forget taxpayers' dollars. It's South Korean money. Apparently, the money is the, 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 the money that South Korea owes Iran for that amount of oil that Iran delivered to it. But because of the global sanctions regime, they were not allowed to return it. So in this case, apparently that's the case. But, you know, again, in terms of getting these uh, prisoners back, we don't know all the deals or all the, all the, you know, all the details. And it will take some time. It's very difficult, obviously, uh, the U.S. still trying to negotiate for Evan Grishkovich and Paul Whelan, uh, yeah. who have been detained unfairly in Russia. Do you see this as a way for the Iranian regime to try to counter the rightly negative reputation it has for Iran's morality police cracking down, beating, imprisoning and executing women and supporters for, for women not covering their hair after nearly a year of mass protests following the death, if not murder, of uh, Masa Jin Amini? 
I think the two are very separate, like it's separate from the nuclear deal and all this. But you're absolutely right that the protests, the crackdown, the, you know, the, the, the harsh penalties, imprisonment, even, even extrajudicial executions in the wake of Masa Amini's death and the, and the protest movement has caused the United States and other countries to sort of slow down negotiations. It just wasn't palatable. It wasn't politically uh, palatable to be able to do that. And, and that's one of the, uh, the, the roadblocks that the hostage negotiations ran into. And uh, I think that what you're going to see, though, some have suggested is potentially it's a de-escalation between the United States and Iran, at least until the end of the election. All right, Christiana Amanpour, remarkable reporting. Thank you so much, as always. CNN is on the ground in Hawaii, where unprecedented wildfires have caused widespread destruction. Crews are fearing that they could find more victims in the rubble. We're going to take you there. Our national lead brings us back to Hawaii, where dozens are dead and thousands are homeless. The wildfires, which suddenly erupted on Tuesday, fueled by a hurricane, the winds of a hurricane 800 miles away, could take years uh, to fully recover from. This was the once bustling Maui tourist town uh, of Lahaina on the left. On the right, you can see it's uh, been much of it reduced to ash. Um, Let's get right to CNN's Veronica Miracle, who's on the ground on the island of Maui. Veronica, show us where volunteers are focusing their efforts. Well, Jake, right now they're focusing their efforts on getting supplies to those people who are stuck in Lahaina by land and by sea. And so there are a couple of boats behind me. They've been bringing supplies to these boats all morning. These volunteers put out a call asking people to just bring supplies to this location. And people showed up in droves. They've been loading up those boats for the last hour. And in fact, they have so many supplies still, they were able to get a trailer. So they're going to be taking this by car as well uh, to those individuals. Uh, Take a listen to why these people are so moved. Some of them have first-hand accounts. Uh, some of those uh, individuals experienced the escaping themselves. I just spoke to a man who said he got out with his dog and his two children, and now that he is safe, he is trying to help those who are still stuck. Uh, the numbers are staggering. At least 36 people are presumed are, are dead, and there are presumed to be more. Absolutely devastating. Less than 11 thousand people are still without power. Take a listen to the organizer about why he felt so compelled to bring all of these people together. The fire bombs were so big, they were sucking oxygen out of the air. People were didn't ha- have oxygen to breathe and they were just falling in the place. I think this is an absolutely top level national disaster. It, it, we've never seen anything like it. I've been here 32 years and We've lived through some hurricanes and floods and things, but uh, nothing to this level. Some of the supplies that are here, diapers, water, food, bedding, anything that those people might need, including gasoline. We're told that some people are just not able to get out because they don't have enough gas in their tank. So all of these supplies are heading out in the next hour. This is just one group. There are many groups, all these people coming together, hoping that it will help in some small way. Jake. Veronica Miracle on the island of Maui for us. Thanks so much. Uh, Let's go to the mayor of Hawaii County. Uh, Mitch Roth, who joins us now from the Big Island. Uh, Mayor Roth, thanks for joining us. So earlier this morning, you said evacuations were lifted in your county, which covers the Big Island, uh, but you added that the island is not completely in the clear. Two new brush fires popped up. What makes you confident those fires will not erupt into the monster wildfires that happened and are still happening in some ways on on Maui? Well, you know, we we had uh, 
actually three or four on the Kona side, and then we had two in Ka'u. Both of those have also been put out. So right now we're kind of in a place, we're, we're in a pretty good place, actually. Uh, fire crews have things under control, and we've actually changed our focus uh, from, you know, being concerned about what's happening on the Big Island to uh, seeing what we can do to help Maui County. You know, we set up a, a task force over here. There's, you know, the, the whole state, I'm guessing the whole country wants to help in what ways they can. And so on our island, we set up a task force so that we're not overwhelming the mayor and uh, his staff over there. And, and Mayor Roth, you're uh, receiving evacuees from Maui, uh, from the island of Maui on the Big Island where you are. How many evacuees are on the Big Island right now and what, what resources are most needed right now for them? So what's happening with the evacuees, is there's some hotels that have actually um, have sister hotels on Maui. They've taken some people. Some of our hotels, I think, have also had people come over here. The majority of the evacuees, though, are going to Honolulu to the convention center. Um, so, you know, the, the people who are coming here really aren't coming into our shelters. They're, they're generally going into hotels who are willing to take them, take them in. All right. Hawaii County Mayor Mitch Roth, thank you so much. And obviously, uh, prayers uh, with the people of Hawaii. If you want to know how to help, you can go to CNN.com slash impact uh, for a list of charities that have been vetted by CNN that can help the good people of Hawaii. Coming up, Republicans in Congress uh, pledging to investigate Joe Biden. Have they found any actual evidence of corruption by Joe Biden, the president, the chair of the House Oversight Committee, James Comer of Kentucky, uh, will join me live next. Continuing with our politics lead, we turn to the push by House Republicans to, at the very least, open an impeachment inquiry into President Biden. On Wednesday, Republicans on the House Oversight Committee released a memo stating, quote, the committee has now identified over $20 million in payments from foreign sources to the Biden family and their business associates, end quote. The memo does not show any of that money going directly to Joe Biden, the president. We are joined now by the committee's chairman, Republican Congressman James Comer of Kentucky, uh, Mr. Chairman, thanks for joining us. So the memo alleges payments to Biden family members and associates, uh, but not to President Biden himself. Your committee memo anticipates any pushback on this by stating, quote, President Biden's defenders purport a weak defense by asserting the committee must show payments directly to the president to show corruption, unquote. But was respectfully, sir, you're the one who said repeatedly that this investigation is about President Joe Biden, not his family, over and over Here's what you said last November. I want to be clear. This is an investigation of Joe Biden. And that's where the committee will focus in this next Congress. So let's pause it for the sake of argument that Hunter Biden is sleazy and the president's relatives tried to profit off the Biden family brand, something CNN has reported on. What's new in this memo? Well, before we released the memo, we interviewed Devin Archer, who is one of the associates who was partial owner of one of the shell companies that the Bidens were receiving money from foreign nationals and then laundering it into Biden bank accounts. So the uh, associate Devin Archer testified that Joe Biden had in fact spoken to over 20 of the people who had wired the money uh, to the Biden family members. Now, the reason that's important, Jake, is because the president said repeatedly he had never spoken to his son or anyone affiliated with his son in their business dealings. Now, there, there is no business 
So what the business was, according to Devin Archer, was they were taking money from foreign nationals and they were marketing Joe Biden. Joe Biden was the brand. So that is the first associate that came in implicated Joe Biden as being the reason they were getting this money. And the money is from bad people. The money is from people who are either incarcerated in the countries where they wired the money or they are on the flea from being incarcerated. So we're concerned that the president is compromised because of the millions of dollars that his family's received. And remember, Jake, the president hasn't been truthful with the American people. First of all, he said he never communicated with these people. Devin Archer testified that he has mm -hmm. 20 times, in fact, at least. And then he said that none of this money ever happened while he was vice president. We didn't know this at the beginning of the investigation, but what we know now is the overwhelming majority of the wire transfers happened while Joe Biden was vice president. And they happened days after he left those countries with foreign aid checks or talking about foreign aid. So, so there is a pattern here that should concern every American with respect to corruption in the White House. Well, you, you definitely have made a case that the people who are around President Biden in terms of the lobbyists and his son Hunter have trafficked on that connection to the then vice president, now president. But I haven't yet seen any evidence that the president did anything wrong. Listen, you, you talk about Devin Archer, uh, Hunter, Biden's, uh, Hunter Biden's former business partner. Listen to something Devin Archer told Tucker Carlson earlier this month about Burisma. Now, Burisma, as people remember probably, that is that Ukrainian energy mm -hmm. company that put Hunter Biden on its board while his father was vice president. Take a listen. Did you ever, were you aware do you have knowledge that Hunter spoke to his dad about Burisma? Do I have knowledge? Yes. That, do you know that Hunter spoke to his dad about Burisma? Did you ever see them talk about it, hear them talk about it? Was I never, No, I don't have knowledge of that, though I'd assume it. You would assume it. So it's enough to be sitting in a meal at Lake Como with your new Ukrainian friends, and why wow, your dad happens to call, let's put him on speaker. That would be, that, that's, I think that's, 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 that's enough. That's the, most, the, you know, the second most powerful man in the world. It's just how how the world works. So it's assumptions, it's how the world works. But again, just looking for evidence, because we're talking about impeachment here. I don't see any mm -hmm. evidence of any crime. And frankly, that is how the world works in Washington, D.C. And if you guys are going to launch an effort to try to reform Washington so people who are powerful can't have their wives and children and husbands and others traffic on that relationship... You know, I'll, I'll be first in line to help you out. But it doesn't mm -hmm. seem like you're trying to do that. It, it seems like you're trying to just go after President Biden. No, we're trying to do that. That's been the goal from day one is to have a legislative fix. Uh, a lot of the president's defenders, especially in the media, say that, well, this uh, influence peddling is a cottage industry in Washington. Well, it needs to change. But let's just go back to uh, not having any evidence of wrongdoing with, with Joe Biden. Look, six banks by Joe Biden, Biden family. Not, not, no, like, it certainly... There's sleaze. But, 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 There's look, sleaze there. I'm saying, what did, what did the president do wrong, though? Well, remember, when we started this investigation at the end of January, that's when I got subpoena power, the last week of January. The narrative was the laptop was Russian disinformation. Joe Biden's family never received money from China. Joe Biden's family never received any of this money while he was vice president. And Joe Biden never communicated with any of the people that sent his family this money. All four of those things have been proven false. So our investigations already turned up a lot of information. Now, I think 
even though there may not be any curiosity by by my friends at CNN, I think there's curiosity by a majority of Americans. That, Wait a minute. You're telling me I'm very Joe curious Biden's about it, sir. I'm, I'm, I'm very I curious about right. it. And that's why I'm reading your reports. That's why I have you on the show. And, I just haven't seen. And, and I appreciate it. Look, look here, here's the memo insists right. that even though there's no evidence Biden took personally took the money, it doesn't get him off the hook. It calls the argument, quote, a hollow claim. No other American would be afforded if their family yeah. members accepted foreign payments or bribes, unquote. OK, fair enough. Let me play something that Chris Christie right. told our Caitlin Collins. And look. The Trump family has been involved in grifting for quite some time. Jared Kushner, six months after he leaves the White House, gets $2 billion from the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund. When Donald Trump had put him in a position to be in the Middle East, what was Jared Kushner doing in the Middle East? Again, sir, it all stinks to me. It all stinks. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Look, and, and I've been vocal that I think that what Kushner did crossed the line of ethics. Uh, but what Christie said, it happened after he left office. Still no excuse, Jake, but it happened after he left office. And Jared Kushner actually has a legitimate business. This money from the Bidens happened while Joe Biden was vice president, while he was flying to those countries. He flew Days after he left Romania, his family started receiving wires from a corrupt Romanian foreign national. Days, Jake, like four days after he left including his granddaughter. What's his granddaughter doing getting a wire from a Romanian so, foreign national? But, this is why we're investigating. And it's difficult, Jake. It's very difficult. The, the Biden attorneys are obstructing. They're intimidating witnesses. The DOJ will not cooperate with us. The FBI will not cooperate with us. The IRS will not cooperate with us. Thank God we had whistleblowers from the IRS testifying our committee that they were told to stand down by the DOJ. Sure, we had, we, 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 had one of those, we had those we had one of those whistleblowers uh, on the show, actually. We did an interview with him. I don't know if you well, knew CNN's that. CNN's done a, done a better job than a lot. That's why I'm on the, on the show, and I'm a fan, Jake, and, and I'm working with you on this. But All I right. do think that it, it, there's, there's certainly overwhelming evidence. Remember, there's a text message from Hunter Biden to his daughter complaining that he had to give his father half his salary. So we've gone through a lot of bank records. Yeah. We haven't gone through all the bank records. But look, we've caught Joe Biden in several lies, including that he never spoke with any of these corrupt people from these foreign countries that sent his family money. He had dinner with some of them, we found out right. in this. He had, you know, so there, there's, I think, more than enough evidence to show that Joe Biden hasn't been truthful with the American people. And you know. He had knowledge that his family was money laundering. He had to. You think the Treasury? Well, money, but money laundering. Look, if there's evidence of money laundering, which is a which is a crime, which is which is a federal crime, then obviously uh, your committee should report it uh, to to the FBI and the Justice Department. And that's why the judge kicked it out. That's one of the reasons the Delaware judge rejected the the sweetheart plea deal. The judge there was clearly violations of the Foreign Agents Registration Act and money laundering. Right. Republican Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer, Kentucky, yeah. you'll come back uh, when you got when you got more uh, to talk about. We'll work with you, Jake. All Thanks right. for having me. Thanks, sir. How ordinary citizens are turning the script on the show cops using just their cell phones and YouTube. That's next. In Indiana, the ACLU has filed a lawsuit over a new law that forces citizens to stay 25 feet away from police activity when asked to do so. CNN's Josh Campbell takes a closer look now at this ongoing battle. 
Back up. I'm on a public sidewalk. This is a traffic stop. You do not belong I am, here. I am far away. It's become a YouTube staple, cop watching. Don't touch me. People are recording interactions between the police and the public and then posting them online. Back again with another video. Where they're racking up millions of views. Having the film ourselves from a different perspective allows us to document the incident, document the misconduct, and then from there we can take it to the public. Cop watching or First Amendment auditing is hardly a new trend. Can I get your name and badge number? But it's grown more prevalent in recent years after a 2020 video shot by a 17-year-old bystander captured the murder of George Floyd by a Minneapolis police officer using excessive force. If it wasn't for somebody actually filming that incident, no officer would have been held accountable. It's powerful when we can actually show the public what happened as opposed to a police narrative. Cop watchers say their goal is to keep the police from overstepping and to inform people of their rights. And while they rake in views, some are also making money back at it once again from ads and subscriptions. But while critics say some cop watchers film in ways that are controversial or seen as aggressive towards law enforcement, am I obstructing the roadway? You're in the roadway. Am I obstructing it? That's the only law. And could be increasing tensions between police and the public. I personally think I calm down the situation when I show up. Cops act differently. We all act differently when when people are watching. So you've arrived at a scene, started filming, and seen a noticeable change in the posture of police? Every night, all the time. I've reviewed a lot of video taken by uh, citizens regarding police conduct, and it does give you a clearer picture of what actually took place. Videos can be selectively edited, but when legitimate, offer a different view than an officer's body camera. As long as the officer's actions are consistent with their training, with their department policy, and most of all, are constitutional, then it's not a problem at all. In recent years, several states have tried to pass laws, creating more physical distance between people and police. Last month, a new law in Indiana went into effect, ordering people to stay 25 feet back from police activity when asked. This week, the ACLU sued on behalf of a citizen journalist, saying that law violates his First Amendment rights. The ACLU challenged an Arizona law last year that tried to make it illegal for people to record videos within eight feet of police activity. The First Amendment allows me to do this. That law was put on hold. People have a right to film the police. They don't have a right to interfere with the police trying to do their jobs and make an arrest. But they have every right in the world to film. That's just a fact, and police officers have to adapt to it. And our thanks to Josh Campbell for that report. Thirteen American service members were killed in a suicide bombing during the botched Afghanistan withdrawal. But two years later, one mom is still waiting for answers about what happened to her son. She joins me next. It has been nearly two years since 13 U.S. service members were killed in that suicide attack at the Kabul airport during the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. This week, some of their families spoke out about their loss for the first time publicly, including the mother of Staff Sergeant Taylor Hoover. His served time on Afghan soil. His concern began the moment that he landed and saw what he saw. His words were chaos, no communication, lack of leadership. Um, He said he'd never seen anything like it. And like I said, he was in Afghanistan two times before. He told me, Mom, I I now know that the the command cares nothing for us. 
my son, these 12 others left this earth thinking that their command cared nothing for them. And Taylor's mother, Kelly Barnett, joins us now. Um, and Ms. Barnett, I know you've been hesitant to speak out about what happened to your son, and I totally respect that. Why have you decided to talk publicly now about it? Thanks. Thank you, Jake. Um, well, you know, I, you know, if you give me a little leeway here, when I first saw, you know, the text saying CNN wanted to talk to me, I was so happy. Um, where have y'all been? We need you, Jake. We need, we need, we need you. We need CNN. We need all the other networks to, to, to voice our opinions, our, our truths and get it out there. We need the country to come together. Um, I, I want justice for my son. He fought and he died for this country, not for conservatives, not for liberals. He fought for all of us. My job as his mom is to make sure that we come together and make sure this never happens again and that all of our voices, our, our truths are always able to be told and that we get to the bottom of this. So, like I said, that it never happens again. Yeah, no, we've been covering um, the story of the botched withdrawal uh, since it happened, um, and uh, it's just heartbreaking. Um, you have said that the Biden administration lied to you about what happened uh, that day. Tell us more about that. What did they tell you that was wrong? Um, first off, they told me that my son died on impact, um, which is completely 100% false. He, um, he lived. He put a tourniquet on himself. He handed out his ammo to his men um, because, you know, gunfire is going off. Uh, so he, uh, you know, he did live for a little while. Um, I now know because of witnesses that were there, you know, how he, where he was when he passed. Um, they lied to, about where he was standing. And again, from witnesses, I now know where that truth is. Um, I'm not really sure, you know, they even know where he was at this point, but I know where he was. Um, they've given, uh, false statements. You know, I, I, you know, the autopsy, my, my daughter's an, uh, an ER nurse and, you know, went over the autopsy. There's some discrepancy there. Um, but it's just things that shouldn't really, I mean, it, it, in, in the whole things, why, why would, why lie about those things that are most important to me, um, when it doesn't really cloud, the mission, the investigation, I, d I don't understand. But that's the one thing that I am concerned about. Sometimes uh, President uh, Biden and other uh, opinion leaders, other uh, leaders of government watch um, the show. If President Biden were, were watching right now, what would you want to say to him? <laughs> um, I would want to say to him that he needs to be a grown man. Um, he needs to come out um, and say, yeah, I made a mistake. I chose wrong. Um, I was looking for a photo op and uh, I messed up. That's what he needs to do. Kelly Barnett, we thank you for your time. We thank you for your courage coming on air. Um, may your son's memory uh, be a blessing. Um, and uh, we'll, have you we'll have you back again if you want to come on. Um, we'll be right back. Yeah. Thank you, Jake. Stay in touch. Thank you. A quickly developing story in our world lead, Ecuador says FBI agents are headed to that country to help investigate the assassination of a presidential candidate there. Fernando Villavicencio was shot to death yesterday, just 11 days 
before that country's election. He was known as an anti-corruption candidate. So far, six men have been arrested in the investigation into his assassination. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Threads, X, formerly known as Twitter, Blue Sky if you have an invite, the TikTok, at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of the show, you can listen to The Lead once you get your podcasts. All two hours just sitting there like a delicious, delicious serving of poi. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer, who is in the situation. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.